Welcome to the Back Bay Life Science Report, modern insights from biopharma and medtech leaders. On this podcast, you'll hear from our experts in life science development, commercialization, and investment banking. Along with experts from our network of biotech and medtech executives, physicians, bankers, and strategists who excel at guiding global life science companies and their investors through complex decisions. Join our conversation at the intersection of science and business. Here are your hosts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life Science Report, a new podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My name is Jonathan Gertler. I'm the managing partner and CEO of Back Bay Life Science Advisors here in Boston. The field of life sciences always changes quickly. We've launched this podcast so that we can share brief but important updates with all of you. Thank you for being here with us. Today, my guests are Vasilios Kafitsis and Greg Benning, the leaders of Back Bay's Investment Banking Group. Greg is our head of investment banking practice and managing director, specializing in mergers, acquisitions, licensing, and partnering. He has over 25 years of client advisory and transactional experience. Vasilius also is a managing director in Backbase Investment Banking Group and has more than 20 years of experience in strategy and corporate finance for biotech, pharmaceutical, and medtech companies. Both Greg and Vasilios have been with Backbase since inception in 2010. In today's episodes, we're going to be discussing the topic of life science SPACs in anticipation of our upcoming forum with Endpoints News, June 17th. Vasilios and Greg, thanks so much for joining me today. Let's start by asking you to set up the current landscape for life science SPACs for the informed listener. And I guess my first question would be, how do you see life science SPACs playing into the overall SPAC money flows? They're up, they're down, they're hot, they're cold, and they're always a part of life science investing. Yeah, hi. So, yeah, again, I'm Greg Benning, and I'm a partner at Back Bay Life Science Advisors, and I head up the, the transactional practice. So, my background is um, um, 30 years um, investment banking, the bulk of that um, working with public companies, and um, the bulk of that working with emerging growth companies. And I think when you look at this, the, the, the topic today of SPACs, um, you have to just sort of drop back and look at, at biotech as the combination of science and strategy and funding. And then within the funding component of that, there's, there's the money itself. And then where does it come from? So SPACs are kind of, and interestingly, when the first SPAC, the Gladstone SPAC came out in 1993, um, in a former life, I had responsibility for some of the um, business to public business development companies like Hercules and, and American Capital. And then, you know, we, so, so Gladstone was on my radar back then. And, you know, through 2018, there was about 40 billion of capital raised um, through the SPAC vehicle. And, you know, they largely competed with private equity and strategics for hard to fund assets, you know, in the food space, the agriculture space, um, real estate. Um, but, you know, it's funny when you went into, COVID and you said, well, how is all this going to change things? Uh, I don't think any of us could have predicted that last year there was about 80 billion of SPAC issuance. Um, and in, I think in the first quarter of this year, 75. And, you know, of all of those SPACs that came out in the past years, just to sort of um, make a summary observation and pause, um, there are about 60 of them out there right now that have a life sciences mandate that are, that are looking for targets. And I think I think the crux of the panel um, discussion in a couple of weeks 
is going to be that whole issue around the pluses and minuses around what's the right target and 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 is the SPAC vehicle the right way to to fund that science and 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 and, and the strategy that 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 science has. So let's let's pursue that a little bit further, and then I want to go into the issues of IPO markets versus SPACs. Greg, un- understanding that. For every asset, there's a match in capital. At the moment, and the moment has been for several years at least now, there's an enormous amount of capital flowing into biotech. And that's flowing into not only biotech and the science, it's flowing into the real estate around biotech and the entire sector has enormous capital flows coming in. Do you see any issue, um, as you use SPAC as a vehicle, with introducing into the public markets you know, the fact that you may be bringing companies public that might not necessarily pass the scrutiny of a tougher IPO market or even the IPO market as it exists today. Yeah, well, I, th- I think, uh, and Vasilios can chime in on this as well. One of the interesting things historically, if you looked at traditional crossover investing, it was, it was um, public investors dipping into later stage venture um, and um, taking um, that business risk um, that the underwriters did not think was appropriate for the public markets, because generally speaking, you know, when you when you come public, you want to have a decent amount of visibility about what the first six to twelve months are going to look like in terms of prospective um, um, operating results. And there's a certain unpredictability, specifically to the life sciences um, around um, near-term data. Um, um, in, inflection point impact on valuation, and then where do you go from here? Which is probably what you need the money from 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 the public offering to to pursue. So there's a balancing act in there um, that um, um, again, in terms of what's an appropriate target for a public company, and in a hot IPO market, generally you'll see people dipping earlier into the clinical pipeline. Um, um, and you'll have things that have, you know, a, a use of proceeds um, that are that are appropriate for this, you know, for a public for a public scaled offering. Um, but it, it's it's a very delicate balancing act. And, and Vasilius, I don't know if if if, if you pick it up there. No, f- fully agreed. Some of the issues that you brought up, Greg, uh, around the same questions that you would ask an IPO candidate if you're on the banking side, it's the same questions on, on, on the SPAC, right? It's the, like you said, you alluded to news flow. Um, you need to have that news flow as a public company. Another issue that comes up is, is aftermarket support where in a traditional IPO, it's the underwriters on the cover that where, you know, you're going to get coverage after the lockup periods and the appropriate time periods expire. So are you going to have the appropriate aftermarket support? Um, once merging via via SPAC, so the same questions are asked um, with both vehicles. And what's made SPACs popular is: look, you're having large banks that are involved on the healthcare SPACs these days, something you didn't, you haven't had in, in the past. And you also have the fundamental investors, so you're getting potentially the aftermarket sponsorship um, ahead um, going into a SPAC. So, Vasilios, let me ask you, because a lot of SPACs, a lot of healthcare SPACs, a lot of people enthusiastic, and 
dare I even say giddy about the possibilities. Okay, they right. they can be, but um, there are you know there are concerns about doing this, and you know you counsel um, and we counsel on both sides candidates for being the despacking target, and we counsel those doing diligence into their targets. And both sides have to have concerns. So let's let's leave aside the giddiness and the excitement of having all this capital available, which certainly drives the field forward, uh, and talk a little bit about what you caution people about in terms of looking at this either from the buy side of a SPAC looking to de-SPAC or from the sell side trying to find their way into these markets. So I'll start with, with the, the sell side. The first question, and, and I've had multiple of the same conversations here in the last week, so it's a timely question, Jonathan. The first question for me is, do you want to be a public company? Are you ready to be a public company? We've seen SPACs, for example, become an attractive option because the capital that's deployed and the capital that you could potentially have on a pro forma basis is giddy. Also, um, valuations have gone pretty high. So I, I saw some data recently that the median multiple on SPAC size for what they're paying for, for targets is six, seven times, which can be significant. So when counseling the sell side, my question always is, first of all, do you want to be public? Okay. Do you have use of, you know, what are your use of proceeds? Because you can end up with 200, 300 million in the bank. So are you able to articulate use of proceeds? And while, yes, valuations at DSPAC can be really attractive, do you have enough news flow to essentially validate that market cap, that pro forma valuation, and retain it over time and grow it? And so there's a lot to consider there, and there's a lot in there where, yeah, you, know, you see the giddiness of how much cash you can, you can have, the investor sponsorship and the investor mix post DSPAC. But are you able to sustain that valuation? Are you able to sustain as a public company when you're looking one, two, three years down the road? Um, are you going to have the news flow? Are you going to have the key inflection points that, that, that drive value, as we know, in, in, in healthcare? And it's almost a similar question on, on the buy side uh, on SPACs, right? Beyond the, the analytics and the diligence, does this opportunity pass muster? Is this management, te- management team ready to be public? So um, let me let me let me jump in for a second. I'm going to shift do. to shift to Greg for a moment. Yes. And and I think we can all assume who wouldn't love to be, you know, on the road constantly with road shows whether they're virtual or or real and be under constant scrutiny by being a public by being a public company. It just sounds always ideal. But kidding aside, Greg, you've you've spent your life counseling companies on valuation and finding the right balance of being rewarded for what you do, but also making sure that you still have a place to go that's upwards. What worries you about valuation dynamics at the moment in the SPAC marketplace? Well, uh, you know, I think I think that if you have to you have to ask yourself the question: Are you coming at it from the target company, or are you coming at it as a potential SPAC investor? Um, I think if you're a SPAC investor, simplistically, you're trusting in the 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 board of directors and the and the and the and the and the scientific advisory group that the SPAC is using, and this is specific to life science SPACs, you're you're counting on them picking a good target and valuing it correctly. If you're the um, 
the company that's the target of, 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 of the DSPAC transaction, your eye really has to be on a couple of things. One is, um, are you going to be able to get enough money to, to drive um, the, 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 the pro forma combined company through an inflection point? Um, because that's where the real opportunity is. And then, you know, I think I, I, you get into the whole, okay, are we selling it at, at fair value or, or, or 90% of value? And I think in general, you have to keep a close eye on leaving a little bit of sizzle on the stake for the market so that the, the analysts that are describing the deal to the next potential buyer of the stock um, have, have, you know, an ability to put an upward price target on it. Um, so I, you know, I think I think um, you have to um, you have to sort of begin with the end in mind, which is what's this thing going to be worth a couple of two three years down the road when we've realized the story that we're that we're that we're trying to enable. No, thanks. Thanks for that. And you know, we have our own axiom um, that nothing more dilutive than undercapitalization. But overcapitalization has its risks also, if for no other reason than investors can get impatient if you're not deploying. So, Vasilios, as you as you look at the matchup between the right spec vehicle and the right company, and you've talked about upcoming inflection point and news flow and use of proceeds, what would you counsel with regard to matching? the company and the products to the right size spec in terms of making sure you get that part of it right? Uh, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's absolute being able to articulate the use of proceeds and how far it, it, it will take you and what inflection points are you going to meet. And this is consistent across the board. And whether it's a VC investment or, or IPO or public company, it's the same questions um, around Okay, what are your use of proceeds? Where are they going to be deployed? What value are you going to be able to provide shareholders over a period of time? And it has to be frequent and it has to be consistent. I mean, there's nothing worse. I mean, taking the, I guess the negative component of this is nothing worse than being public and, and not having the news flow to justify valuation. And we've seen companies that, that go public at attractive valuations. They have, not enough news flow to maintain valuation. And they get into this micro crap purgatory. And I think I'm stealing that from you, Jonathan. Um, where when there, it's almost impossible to get out. And so I, you know, it's, it's, it's something that needs to be taken, you know, seriously. Um, uh, once you get beyond again, as you called it, the, the giddiness. Well, it also raises the question, and Greg, maybe speak to this a little bit of, you know, the outcomes with traditional IPOs. And, and I'd love you to comment on the factors that drive you to decide, you know, SPAC um, merger versus traditional IPO. But one of the, um, one of the drivers can be how rich is the pipeline? Are you a platform with product? Are you a series of products? Are you a, bi a binary outcome type of play? And the latter, I think, whether it's traditional SPACs or traditional IPOs or traditional SPACs, um, really can lead to that microcap purgatory more quickly than anything. But Greg, as you counsel companies and they're choosing, let's say, between traditional IPO and a SPAC, what would you advise them to really look at? And where would you really find that there's a schism between those that can do an IPO versus those that really can't and how that outcome happens? Well, you know, I guess one thing um, when, you, when you're going the traditional IPO route, um, one of the questions they'll ask about use of proceeds is, is how long is it going to get you? Because you do have some, 
some filing restrictions in terms of when you can come back to the market after after you know an S one based um, IPO. Um, so, I mean, I, I think I think it, at the highest level, it's how much money do you need and how much is available. In a SPAC, typically you would use a, a, a you know, some co-investment in the DSPAC transaction by the original investors combined with a pipe to get you up to the, 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 the scale of, of company that, that you're trying to present to the market. Um, you know, in a, in a traditional IPO, um, um, you know, that, that sort of building of the analyst coverage and building of the investor base is, more carefully considered, I think in, in terms of a SPAC, you have relatively concentrated ownership and you've got ownership that particularly if it's, if it's a, if it's a deal that has some, some structure in the original investors, that's looking, that's looking for an exit. So it's, it's, um, you know, I, I don't think in either case, um, you can get away from the fact that as a, as a public CEO, you're going to have to be spending a fair amount of your time building a market for the stock of your company. Um, but you know, the, the, when you, when you, when you go, when you, when you stop at that point and consider an IPO book building process versus a SPAC, they're just, they're fundamentally different. Terrific. So, um, Vasilios, anything you want to add to those observations in terms of the, the dynamics you're seeing there? And I would actually ask you also to comment not only about U.S. companies, but let's be specific about European companies that are now looking across the Atlantic to our very, very robust SPAC market. Oh, of course, and, and there, are, there are a number of them and that, are, that are looking at SPAC options, um, that are educating themselves on, on, on the SPAC options and, and the questions they have to face is, you know, most of them, have European-based investors? Do they want to own public shares in the U.S. entity, and how that interplays with their LPs and 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 their and their their own internal investor dynamics? Having said that, you know there there are a number of SPACs out there that have specifically as part of their their focus, they state they're going to look at European companies. So I think it's an area where we're likely to see a bit an increase in in in, in transactions that that do. Uh, include European companies coming into the U.S., where there, there is a lot more capital uh, for them, not only through a SPAC transaction, but in, in as a public company moving yeah, ahead. And, and I think I think so. The first U.S. SPAC was in '93. The first European SPAC was actually in in 2003. So, I mean, whether it's an IPO or it's SPAC, they're both. You can either look at it as a as a as a as a financing tool or a, or a, or a structured financing vehicle. But um, life sciences specs in Europe um, um, will actually have a panelist um, in, on in two weeks from LSP who um, were the sponsors for a, a, a European-focused life science spec. So that'll be interesting to ask, ask questions directly to them. And I think one of the best things about that panel is, is it's going to be they're going to be war stories about types of companies they've been looking for um, and. Um, you know the pros and cons of different types of companies in terms of clinical stage versus commercial. You know, is it is it a um, um, is it is it um, the next big thing that you're looking for? Is it a project asset specific kind of a thing, or is it a standalone business? Um, and and I think I think it'll be really interesting to go through the whole. How do they figure out what the right company is for that SPAC um, as, as from the sponsor's perspective? 
Well, another mantra is always make sure you match the company and the asset to the capital. And that's something that I think needs to be remembered over and over again. I I just want to allude to one thing and maybe just a short answer, Vasilios, because I also don't, I want to spend a little bit of time with you both introducing the exciting webinar that's coming up. But obviously, the more capital that flows in, the more regulatory scrutiny it attracts. Um, Where are we now versus nine months ago in the SPAC universe? From a regulatory perspective, everyone was waiting for it, and now we're just seeing the beginning of it, um, where regulators are really going to start taking a hard look at this. Um, we saw how the, the how warrants are now going to be um, accounted for in, in, in the SPAC. Um, so I think that's led to a bit of a slowdown in SPAC IPOs, and, and I think it's just the tip of the iceberg, and that's the real unknown here. Um, or what are the regulators going to do moving ahead? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, the other aspect of that is, is, is litigation risk. And, and I think, you know, with respect to biotech, where you, sometimes you have good data and sometimes you don't, um, I think the idea of SPACs looking at something that has kind of a, a yes or no outcome is going to be sort of interesting because if you're sitting there as the board of directors of a public company and you have a failed trial and the stock gets crushed, uh, you can pretty much count on the the the, the class action lawyers following um, in, in in short order. So in terms of again, what's the right company to put into a SPAC? Um, you know, it could be a fantastic drug development candidate, but um, in terms of the the situational risks of the of a public company board making a, a, a sole bet on one play um, that 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 that's an interesting question to ask that that group. Well, I think we've what we've covered on today's podcast is that the SPAC universe is just yet another aspect of the heterogeneous financing environment that brings biotech and other aspects of healthcare investing forward, that it has loads of issues in the landscape, loads of pitfalls, loads of upside. So, Greg, we have an upcoming um, webinar with Endpoints News. Tell me a little bit about that and so that the audience is able to dig in even more deeply when that is aired. Yeah, well, I mean, there are half a dozen of us that will be participating and be moderated by Endpoints. Um, so Vasilios and I will both um, add a few comments, but the primary focus is going to be on um, um, three SPAC sponsors and um, one um, SPAC um, deal attorney that puts these things together. And um, as I mentioned before, one of them is European. Uh, the other two are um, um, surreal SPAC sponsors um, in the U.S., um, so um, it'll be people that have been to this, been through this um, many times. And I've heard a couple of them speak on other panels, which I think led to some of our invitations for this one. But, when, you know, the concept of SPAC technology and how the market is moving. And we've talked about different levels of, of the SPAC stratosphere um, here from asset selection to capital markets to building building the investor base to you know, what's going on from a litigation and a regulatory standpoint, and they all interact. So, uh, you know, as, as things are here today, it's probably going to be different a month from now. Um, and um, it'll be, it'll be interesting. It, it should be a really good panel. No, terrific. I agree. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah just to add to that. Sorry about that, Jonathan. It's, 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 it's going to be an interesting panel. And it, what, what I'm looking forward to is the different perspectives uh, that are going to be on there, the investor side, the, 
SPAC operators and of course legal being some of the key. Yeah, I, I think the moderator's job. I think the moderator's job is going to be pretty easy because I think these people yeah. are going to be asking each other the questions. Yeah, couldn't Always. be more. Always makes it much better. Listen, Greg Vasilios, thanks so much for joining me here today. And again, for the audience to reiterate, in June, Vasilios and Greg, the Back Bay's um, investment banking team leaders in conjunction with Endpoint News, are going to be hosting a live discussion on the SPAC structure, this evolving asset class, and importantly, how it relates not just to SPACs, but to our entire financing environment. The experts on that webinar are going to be offering experiences, predictions for life science SPACs in 2021 and beyond, 2022 and beyond, and we truly hope you'll join us. You can learn more and register for the event, which is on June 17th by visiting our website, www.bblsa.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Back Bay Life Science Report, brought to you by the Back Bay Life Science Advisors Strategy and Investment Banking Teams. To learn more, please visit us at bblsa.com and connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. For show notes or links to items mentioned in the show, visit the podcast page on our website. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening source.